0: Today, we're gonna talk with people who are determined to achieve change. And as we enter the new year of 2023, that couldn't be more important. So as we uh, come out of what I call the post-pandemic pandemic, pandemic, and we try to make things happen, we're gonna be talking about the following. Commitment to change, commitment to justice, intentionality, getting to the bottom of things and telling the story. I hope you enjoyed the next interviews, uh, first with Janice Kearney about Mahalia Jackson, the book she just did, and followed by a very interesting conversation between Chris Kavakov and Edwin Lombard um, on addressing our crime challenges. is somebody I've known for about, I don't know what, 20, 30 years, something like that. Maybe more. Mm -hmm. Um, I I am so uh, completely unable to remember times and and (laughs) years and places. The only thing I kind of know is before and after Katrina and before and after the pandemic, that seems to be. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Before and after coming south, I mean, I am a reformed Yankee is what I say. right. But lately, I've taken to saying I'm from the South, <laughs> Bronx. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I, didn't own, I didn't take ownership of my uh, childhood in the Bronx until um, AOC and Cardi B
1: and, uh-huh. and
0: I said, "Oh, okay, those are my homegirls." That's what <laughs> I mean. now maybe you'll understand me a little better. Right, right. I'm not a <laughs> Southern belle. I'm more of an outspoken girl from the Bronx. But. Um, uh, I've known you primarily in terms of your role in the White House, when you were working as um, when I knew you primarily, I believe, as a diarist for the for the president. Right. President Clinton. And um, and Bob, of course, your husband was working, um, basically running personnel uh, for the federal government under Clinton. Um, and I, I I, think the connection originate, originates, right, in Arkansas. And my husband did some work there. And met right. And, Texarkana, uh, Arkansas. And then there's plenty of um, history there. Yes. Uh, that's not what we're going to talk about today. Because you've done this amazing book about an amazing woman, Mahalia Jackson, who in some ways uh, reflects some of the issues in your life and uh, coming from um, a very modest background and um, and advancing through many stages of your life um, in, in pl- various places, but essentially uh, through it all writing. Yes. And writing about the lives of other people who were able to surmount uh, challenges and um, uh, do things that were important for the rest of us. And um, so I think that that's a pretty neat path to have um, chosen. Let me start by asking you even though we're going to talk about Mahalia Jackson, the book that you have uh, recently, I guess, published and yes, here in New Orleans. Um, next week, and we'll uh, definitely pin down those dates and places because there's, you have a whole itinerary. It's not just one stop. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but uh, how did you get into writing? It looks like pretty early You studied journalism. Uh, how did it go in that direction? for you?
1: I started writing before I knew anything about writing. I always tell people that I credit my father because he was this amazing storyteller. And I was, I just was immersed in his storytelling. And very early, five, six, seven, I started trying to write stories based on his stories. So I just fell in love with it, fell in love with writing and words and sentences and so from that point on, all through high school, all through college, I wrote. And I, in college, I wanted to uh, major in creative writing, but they didn't have that program at the University of Arkansas when I was there in the '70s, early '70s. So instead of that, I ended up majoring in journalism. And uh, I think that was a good choice because it teaches you all the basics of of good writing, structure, and all of that. So from there, I ended up working for state government in public communications. And um, it turned out that I had met someone by the name of Daisy Bates, who was our civil rights leader in Arkansas, she was the woman who led the the 1957 civil rights crisis at Central High School. So um, I had met her when I was about 16 years old and just, I wanted to be her at that point. And uh, just, I didn't know I'd ever meet her again, but in 1987, she had reopened the newspaper that she and her husband had owned uh, from 1941 until 1959, they had to close it because of their role in the 1957 integration crisis. Uh, their white advertisers pulled ads and, you know, that just kind of uh, destroyed their newspaper publishing. And But she had promised her husband, who had died by the time I saw her again, that she would reopen the newspaper and she did in 1984. In 1987, she was in need of a a, um, managing editor. I went to work for her as her managing editor. So the journalism, which I never thought I'd really use, ended up being used as her managing editor first. And then when she retired, almost three months after I went to work for her, I. Purchased the newspaper and ran the newspaper for a number of years until I went to work for for Bill Clinton. Um, but that is that's the journey. It's always been writing. Writing was the underpinning of everything I've ever done. So yeah.
0: So um, and 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 memoirs seem to be uh, or, or autobiography rather not autobiographies but biographies. Um, and a study of memoirs seems to also have been two important threads in your life. And they come together to some extent with the mm-hmm. book that you have just finished with uh, on Mahalia Jackson. So let's talk a little bit about uh, Mahalia Jackson and the book on her.
1: Yeah, uh, the way that kind of evolved, we lived, we were just talking about Bob and I living in Chicago. And when we were there, we became friends with Roland Barris, and you may not know that name, but Roland was the first African-American comptroller of a state, and he was comptroller at, in Illinois. Uh, and he also became the senator. He took uh, Barack Obama's seat when Barack oh, Obama funny. became president. I said I
0: know that name, Barris, and I couldn't remember from where Yes.
1: So we became friends of his and and they invited, he and his wife invited us to dinner. And while we were there, they told us that they had purchased Mahalia Jackson's home. And we were sitting there in Mahalia Jackson's home. So he shared all this history because he knew her quite well about her. And before we left that evening, he brought down some documents that someone had left. I'm sure they didn't mean to, but they had left in the attic uh, when they when Mahalia moved away. She had moved away some months earlier, before everything. And um, so he said, "I'm only giving you this because I know you write. I know you like history. You have to promise that you're going to write a book about Mahalia Jackson." So that was in about 2006. Given a charge. <laughs> yes.
0: We're given an assignment.
1: Yes, that yes. was 2006. And I said I would, but you see how long that's been. But, Jean, you will remember that I did come to New Orleans. And that was probably about 2010 or 11 or 12 or something like that. Uh, and did some research while I was there because I stayed with uh, you wonderful friends you and, and Bob, and did some research and went to to her home site where she grew up, uh, went to her burial site, talked to several people uh, about her, most who had never met her, just knew of her and knew some of the, you know, relationships. But it was a, a wonderful opportunity for me to be close to her and, and get that vibe of where she grew up. So that was, um, again, there was another like almost 10 years, maybe eight years before I actually started working on the book. And I started working on the book in 2020 during COVID, the same as so many writers did. They just came to this aha moment. This is what we need to be doing at this moment. And a lot of it was not only COVID, but it was also the social justice, the racism, all of the things that were coming to the forefront uh, during that time. And uh, we all felt, I think, that we needed to be writing about things that really matter. We needed to be uh, lifting up history that was ours and maybe had never been lifted up the way we felt that it should have been.
0: So, her story is a story not of somebody who comes from, again, a very modest background and um, develops a dream, despite that background, those limitations of that background and um and goes after it very intentionally. And I think that being a person who did not pursue my first love of I, I really came out of college wanting to, work in film, be a film, oh, wow. And uh, I was 1965, there weren't very many women doing that. And I right. checked out, I sort of, you know, folded my tent and said, okay, what can I do for a living? Mm-hmm. And wound up in marketing and p- public relations and journalism myself. Um, mm-hmm. Not having really intended to become a journalist, much as the way you did, but uh, right. just kind of, um, uh, I, and sometimes we fall into things in life. We it's do, right? absolutely. So um, she, uh, however, uh, comes of age during the time of the civil rights movement and was involved in it. So that becomes the context for mm-hmm. her development as mm-hmm. a singer but also um, as it turns out a civil rights leader. So tell me about the civil rights part of her, her story.
1: It was accidental. Uh, She was not a person who got out there and marched and made speeches about civil rights until she met Martin Luther King Jr. And that was in about 1955. Uh, She believed in justice. She believed in civil rights, but she was not a person who was a civil rights uh, activist Activist. before she met him. Uh, She was all about singing and you know making her way in the world as far as a gospel singer. Uh, she was extremely, extremely religious. And she believed that God had given her this gift and that's what she was supposed to be doing, to be doing. And she met young Martin Luther King. He was 26, I think, when she met him, and he was the one who set her down and told her this is a responsibility you and by the time he met her she was she was getting to that pip you know pinnacle that she would be at and he said you are famous you people know you people listen to you you have money you have stature you should be doing more for the civil rights um struggle and she said yes i mean he was of course charming and Convincing and all that. But she also agreed with him. So she became one of his staunchest uh, supporters and funders and um, mentors. She introduced him to all kinds of people. Um, she raised all kinds of funds for him. Uh, she just, they became very, very um, symbiotic uh, friends for about 10 years until he passed away. Um, he was assassinated. <laughs> so um, yeah, he gets all the credit for her role that she took on after 1955, 1956 as a civil rights activist.
0: It's it's so interesting how um, there are people who are very much engaged and involved in let's just say change, mm-hmm. who who spark change, who start mm-hmm. catalysts. Um, often forgotten,
1: yes. yes.
0: but they don't take on a, a front of house, you might say, role, mm-hmm. and um, their role um, gets lost in history. Right. And despite the fact that she was famous and, and known, mm-hmm. and, and probably more people were aware of her involvement with the civil rights movement at the time Right. Than we are today, because now yes. we see her mainly as, a, as the vocalist gospel and singer, as the gospel mm-hmm. singer. Um, but there's this whole other um, uh, part of her life that clearly uh was as important mm-hmm. not more so than her actual singing career
1: right, right it was because she felt finally that she was giving back in a way that would matter and matter to people that she you know she she knew that were was part of that struggle that were people that Martin Luther King was really, this whole struggle was based on, on helping them move forward. Uh, She, at that time, she was rubbing elbows with rich people, white people, black people, people that had, but he made her know, we need to help the people who don't have, we need to to take a real leadership role in the struggle. And that's what she did. Um, And, I'm I'm just surprised that there's not more people who know that she played that role because that was a huge part of her. But I, there's not very much that I read in my research that um, said very much about that part of her life.
0: So there's this other part of her life that um, is a, in a way a very common story, but it's a story that is only now I think being viewed Uh, as more, um, what's the word? Uh, um, Crucial in understanding the racial uh, history of our country.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. um, She lived in a place that I can't say (laughs) in New Orleans. And um, although I think I really, I I have to, I'm gonna, probably do some writing and thinking and and talking about that issue because I think it's fraught. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, I think that um, she came up in a a poor community in New Orleans and and, uh, knowing even what New Orleans is like today, I can imagine how difficult that was coming up in an environment where you were denigrated as a person Mm-hmm. Because of your race, of your color, and mm-hmm. surmounting it, people who surmount the limitations of their origins—it's such a—it's always such an interesting story. And time and again, you hear people say that the intentionality of that individual, just the determination. Right. I mean, it's often called that person's dream, but it's mm-hmm. more than that. Yeah. Uh, it, it's because so- we all
1: dream. I yeah. say, because we all dream, it's it's the people who, like you say, have an intention. They know what they're supposed to be doing and they just kind of make, you know, create a way to get there. And that's what she did. And there's nothing, nothing that would make you think that someone that came from what she came from would have been able to do that. Not only was she extremely poor, but she was what they called a cripple when she was little. She, she, she had horribly bold legs and everybody made fun of her. And her, her parents were like, okay, what are we gonna do? They took her to the doctor and the doctor said, we have to fix her bones. We have to reshape her bones and, and reset her bones and they would have to break her bones and let them grow back uh, straight. And her parents said, no, we we can't do that. Um, so they did, the an old wives' tale said that if you washed her legs each night with uh, dishwater, that eventually they would straighten. And that's what they did. And eventually they straightened. Now, whether that had anything to do with it, I don't know, but... They believe that and her legs did eventually straighten. But as a child, she was just terribly kind of crippled. And she she talked to a, a group of young children at one point in California, and it was at a home where children were indeed crippled. And she told them that story about how she'd grown up uh, like they did and how, you know, how she had to go through so much.
0: Um, we um... We're living in a time when uh, I think a lot of people, I, I, I don't know, sometimes I call it the, past, the post-pandemic pandemic. I used uh-huh. to call it period after Katrina, the post-disaster disaster. And now we're in what I think is is the post-pandemic pandemic. In many ways, I, it, it seems like many, many people are having health issues, yeah. whether they're related to COVID or not. I mean, uh-huh. it's also partially generational. I mean, I'm getting up there in years, and a lot of my friends are too. And, and uh-huh. a certain uh, age point, and uh, there's a percentage of the population that um, doesn't make it much further. Right. Um, so we're li- we're living through a very difficult time. The the national, um, I think the national, div- divisiveness and um, just really. Uh, uh, insane commitments to lies and and fraud and mm-hmm. and, and very very vicious uh, power politics is penetrating, I really believe is penetrating our lives at our own local level mm-hmm. and I just think it's a contributor to crime. there's a lot of things that are contributing sure. to. and it's not about police and courts it's it's about, lack of educational preparation for the economy that we live in today. Mm-hmm. I can't do a show without talking about that. I'm so obsessed. Right. With it.
1: Well, it's real. You're, you're right. It's very real. And we're all experiencing it.
0: But, but also um, uh, a, a, a real um, having to deal with the fact that the years since slavery are in many ways as or as or more torturous can't be more, but it, it's it's been as torturous in so many ways. Uh, primarily for people of color, but I, I've got to say for white people as well. There, white people I think have uh, have have suffered in a different way, uh-huh. with, with privilege and with opportunities that people of color did not have, but with angst. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's hard to uh, uh, clarify and note, but is is, is definitely, um, again, an underlying thread in our communities.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so it, it feels to me like your book is incredibly timely in showing how an individual can um, make their way through that kind of social injustice of jungle and come out of it um, in in a place where they decide they want to be. So it's, it's 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 a mentoring experience for people to read the book about Mahalia.
1: Yes, and that's true. Everything you said is true. But the other part of why I wanted to write this book was to tell the other part of Mahalia such as her civil rights work. That was so very important to who she became. But the other part of it is she did go through all of those things that you have just talked about. She grew up in the Jim Crow era. She had to struggle not only when she was a child, but all of those years that she was making her way into becoming Mahalia Jackson, she was going through some of the same things as people in that place in New Orleans was going in, was, was experiencing. She was experiencing segregation. She couldn't stay in hotels. She couldn't eat in restaurants. She couldn't drink at certain places. So she was experiencing all of that. And as I researched and learned more I I realized that some of the same things she was taking with her, maybe internally or whatever. She was becoming someone. She was reaching the pinnacle that she dreamed of. But she also had to experience some really hard things to get there. And I believe that shaped a lot of who she became later on. because people ask me, was she happy? Was she content? And I don't think she was either of those. She experienced some really hardships and I think those stuck with her because they do. Whatever we experience in life, it it infiltrates us one way or another. So I think she was a very lonely woman. I I think all of that hardship, uh, having to stress over where I'm gonna sleep tonight, sleeping in a car most of the time when she travels, she and her, her accompanist, uh, having to cook food and take with them. And if not eating, you know what, not healthy food very often. So all of that had to do with her health, which was not good. As she grew older, it got worse and worse. And eventually that's what killed her, the diabetes and the high blood pressure and the, and the heart ailments. All of that is what took her life far too early. She was just 59, just turned 60 years old. So that's the other part that I, I, you know, I needed to tell about her story. There's no reason that she should have had to die at 60 years old, very unhealthy and unhappy to a certain extent because of the things that she'd had to go through.
0: You are about to talk further with people live in New Orleans uh, on your visit here this coming week, the second week of January. So uh, let's do the itinerary. I'm going to run out of time pretty soon <laughs> okay. we'll talk to you for a longer time. And I, I still want to touch on the issue of memoirs for a minute before. Sure. But sure. let's get, let's get the, uh, the schedule down so that people could come and hear you talk about this in person.
1: Okay. Uh, on January 11th at 10 o'clock. I'm going to be at the at NOLA. I think it's the, and I don't know, have the itinerary before me. It's the uh, library, public library, uh, 10 to 12, I think it is. And then uh, on the 13th, on the, on the 12th, on the 12th, I will be at the, is it the community bookstore?
0: Yeah, community book center. Yeah,
1: yeah, community book center from six to eight, and on the next night from six to eight, I am going to be. Oh no, that's that's when you're
0: at community book center. Is is the last uh, one of your three stops?
1: Okay, and the second one is. Octavia. Octavia bookstore.
0: Uptown, right. And then yes, the book center is, um, is downtown on uh, Bayou Road. And that's mm-hmm. where I'll probably catch you because uh, that's, that's a walk a block away from
1: where I live. Oh, good, good. Um, but yeah. both of those will be from six to eight. And it'll be a conversation, talking about the book, talking about my journey, and a book signing. Those two nights.
0: So um, I, I'm thrilled to have you uh, back in the city. and uh, I'm thrilled but too. Um, but I, I definitely am going to want to borrow some time from you to talk about um, how I can get the, you know, my husband and I usually on a Saturday morning. Uh, we'll kind of digest the week, not in any structured way. It just, it's natural, just happens over coffee. Uh And um, we think about what has happened and and what we didn't get done and what we want to get done. And one subject that comes up week after week is the need for us to work on our memoir. Yes. Although the story is not as um, dramatic, speaking of uh, husband, (laughs) let me just... uh, tell them I'll call back so um uh we need to do this but it's it's really it's hard I find it hard to be doing and writing yes writing requires such a different um mindset and 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 kind of rhythm of life yeah yes. doing because it uh-huh. it's so different so how have the people that you've dealt with who have written memoirs and you have been working with people to help them do that. Uh-huh. Um, what are the, I don't know, two or three key, um, uh, kind of in a soundbite since I am running out of time, uh, <laughs> ways that they have uh, approached um, uh, dealing with that balance and 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 that uh, need to shift gears, so to speak?
1: Just for two or three things, I would say, um, if you're gonna do it yourself, Find a niche of time, a, 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 some time that you can get away from what you're doing. And I know you do a lot, but you need to find some time—two weeks, three weeks, whatever—to pull everything together that you're going to need for your for your book. And you'll need a—you'll have a lot, I know. Um, kind of create yourself a, an outline of what you're going to include in the book. Um, that will be good for you. Make it much easier when you start writing. Uh, I would say that you would need to actually, um, I would get me an editor early on, uh, someone you trust a lot uh, as far as their editing uh, abilities and have them work with you uh, so that you don't have to do it all at one time, editing everything at one time. Uh, just decide what it is that you want this book to do make sure that you know that if you're going to work with somebody, you know, I don't know whether it's a coach or whether it's someone to help you write it or whatever, find that person. You all have conversations before you even get started and they will be able to help you kind of just structure it structure yourself and structure the book.
0: So, um, uh... Uh, at all, all all good advice. And, and I'll just tell you that I think partially what uh, it just occurred to me, and I wasn't thinking of this until this moment, but um, at one point in my life where I had a little bit of, of a break between uh, my jobs and, and my plans to come south to join TANN, I uh, did a series of interviews with people who were involved in the 60s in New York in leading political action. And it was a book I called it "Autobiography of a Generation,"
3: and I interviewed oh, wow.
0: quite a few people for it. And then I really didn't. Then I moved to the city, and became politically involved first with the McGovern campaign, and then later with television news. And 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 it—I I don't even know where the tapes are that I have. Uh-huh. Tapes on cassette somewhere for those people that I interviewed. So it, it's hard for me to do this. So we'll we'll see right. how this uh, goes forward but maybe this little inflection point that we have in our life right now due to this accident that my husband had will um uh, be the um the driving frame i hope
1: so and i'm available if you need me for anything really because you need to write those books and it's going to be more than one book gene it's going to be several books probably
0: no 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 no, <laughs> no don't don't <laughs> that that was the worst thing you could have said because then I'm, I'm, we're looking at I'm looking you've at, got time you've got time just oh just, yeah right okay. yeah create yourself some
1: you know a little little
0: space okay um janice kearney I, uh folks you don't want to miss you have three opportunities uptown central dis uh work um central Business District and, uh, below Canal is what I call my part of town. It's just plain old below canal and um, uh, literally uh, where Vera, uh, Vera's uh, place that you're going, the Community Book Center is, is um, I think she's on the 7th Ward side of uh, the Treme area. So um, great, you, you know, you, you can get to one of these sessions and it will be in our newsletter also in terms of the locations, but I, I guess they can go online to, can they go online to your address? And, and sure. Yeah? So what, sure. So what, what, where do they go?
1: janicefkerny.com. And
0: That's K-E-A-R-N-E-Y. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I can't wait to see you. I hope I get you to too. see you more than just at the Community Book Center. I think we can hopefully um, uh, get together beyond that. That would be
1: great. Great. Uh,
0: welcome a home to New Orleans. It's another one of your homes. Uh, Thank
1: you. Place. Looking forward to it. Thank you so
0: you much, Yeah. I will. All right. Take care. Bye.
1: Bye.
0: I've been hearing the story of Mahalia Jackson, whose the theme of her story, in a way, was um, a combination of uh, the intentionality of her life, despite the limitations and and challenges she had, uh, but also her a commitment to change through um, the civil rights movement. So I kind of developed just quickly to keep my mind. Um, uh, on all of the, what we have to talk about, the, the following uh, kind of key points that we're going to cover. So commitment to change. This is common for Mr. kabakov and also for pokey or Pocahontas, as I just learned a few minutes ago, reading one of your bios, um, Edwin. Um, a commitment to justice, intentionality, getting to the bottom of things and telling the story. That is um, some of the themes that I think are um, common to all three of you. Um, I, I started this interview as kind of um, this particular show out of a conversation that uh, Press Kabakov, um, who is a, basically, I guess you would say, a professionally, a real estate professional, but uh, so much more. And, and Edwin, same thing for you clerk of courts and judge, but so much more. So it's the so much more part that um, I'm fascinated by. And and you all um, have made commitments to um, your city, to your people and in different ways um, approached uh, the issues that really uh, make such a challenge uh, for our our very beautiful, culturally rich, uh, but very challenged city. Um, And, Press recently became involved with the coalition, I don't know if you're involved with it also, um, Edwin, with the um, coalition against crime that has come together with literally hundreds of organizations and people um, to try to, um, again, be more intentional about trying to address the crime issue. But I want to preface our conversation about crime in New Orleans and what you all, your perspective on it. Uh, from uh, both of your different careers and, and engagements. Um, with a statement that I think is critical that we overlook in New Orleans because we tend to be so um, locally driven and myopic a little bit about what's going on outside of us. And um, the crime surge that we're experiencing right now, not that we haven't been through them in the past, uh, but it's nationwide. Uh, you could say it's global in a way where you see see um, uh, mass murders happening in places where they've never been characteristic in places like Canada. Um, but there, there is definitely in the United States, a crime surge going on that maybe is related to the, uh, it's coming out of the pandemic. It's related to failures of our education system. It's related to dramatic changes in the economy. And it's related to a lot of things. But um, I know that Press um, uh, and, and, and um, he was visiting my husband in the hospital at the moment, and, and we were talking about um, the need to deal with the prevention side. And I'm sure Edwin that, that this is something you share in your perspective on it also from your years dealing with the uh, courts. So, Press, um, uh, why don't you lead us off with, with the statement that you made about um, our need to focus on prevention and then um, Edwin I'm going to want to hear um, your I think I suspect you're going to have some very specific uh, thoughts on this but um, generally press uh, you you've um, focused on how critical dealing with not just the courts and police um, but uh, uh, but literally um, how do we get in, in ahead of the and deal with especially young people um, as they um, enter uh, lives on the street and, and and take off in the wrong direction.
3: Jean, thank you for inviting me. Is this going to be recorded?
0: It is being recorded as we speak, visually mm-hmm. and um, audio, and I will have a transcript of it as well because I, I pay for a higher level of Zoom in order to keep, um, you know, I've interviewed over 2000 people. I'm now the second longest host on WBOK, which shocked me to hear the other day, um, because I've just been at it now for um, a long time. So, yes,
3: out of respect uh, for uh, Mr. Lombard, if you'd like to go first, uh, I'd be glad to follow. Otherwise, I'll start off your call. So I guess I'll go first. Uh, the uh, I uh, got involved. Uh, I've been involved in criminal justice of for it seems like thirty years now. The first involvement was pulling in John Linder with my father and John Casbon in '96 when murders were 424 and. Uh, They did a good job, introduced uh, Pennington to uh, 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 Mayor Moriel at that time, Mark. And uh, uh, after that, it looked like we turned up the heat too high and had an over-incarceration problem. And so I got involved, uh, created an organization, uh, Smart on Crime, that. went to the legislature to encourage them to reduce over-incarceration, and we passed a lot of stuff in 2017. And then uh, uh, when crime picked back up a couple of years ago, uh, I decided to get back involved on that side of the equation and met with the Chief Ferguson and D.A. Williams and brought in a whole group and started developing a, a strategy to deal with it. Uh, I certainly encouraged John Linder to come back to the city of New Orleans, given where we were. And uh, as you know, the, uh, the council uh, and the mayor uh, produce, produce, uh, promoted and put in their budget dramatic increases for policing. The biggest issue was that we didn't have enough police. Unfortunately, uh, uh, we're not likely to change that with the great resignation, even with good efforts. If we can just keep it at the level that we're doing now, that's probably a good result. So in that regard, on the policing side, we we pushed ways to make a smaller department more efficient, uh, which was uh, Bringing in civilians, uh, uh, integrating the the entire stakeholder body of the criminal justice system technologically, bringing in some experts from out of state that could help us with data analysts to determine who's really doing this in neighborhoods, hot spots. Uh, but then it's also obvious to me that that. Uh, the police alone side of this won't get us home and that we need to focus on prevention and intervention, always talked about, but really not done. The way you determine whether it's being done is you follow the money. The uh, police uh, close to 200 million a year, uh, really direct prevention intervention Mm -hmm. It's probably less than 1% of that amount. So if you're not going to spend some money there, then you're probably not going to do well. That said, figuring out what to do is very complicated. There are lots of programs that work, and there are many more that don't. And the ones that don't many times get continued funding. And and so uh, the way I've been looking at this is we really have three three buckets. One is the 400 that are likely to, at highest risk, to be murdered, commit murder, shoot, be shot. And then there's another 8,000 or so that could fall into that trap if they're not receiving extra benefits substituting for family failures. And then there's the need of the larger community. Uh, I guess what you would say is that there's primary and secondary uh, prevention and intervention. The primary is really targeted at those most likely to commit the crimes. And you you might say it's not the end of the day that we have X amount of murders. Uh, We lost more than that in COVID. But murder is sort of like a shark attack. Only one person gets hurt, but the whole swimming population decides it's too dangerous to swim. And so when you're sort of at the top of the list, and you're right, Gene, this is a national problem, but we are the poster child here in New Orleans on a per capita basis. But if you go down another 10 points, you've just included another 20 cities. And many of those are rural jurisdictions. Uh, Sometimes they say this is just a phenomenon of of democratically controlled minority cities. Not the case. This is abroad across the spectrum. But that said, we have a terrible problem in in the city. And so uh, what I'm trying to encourage and pulling in, we have a lot of expertise in the city. Tulane's got an office of violence. Uh, the mayor's got an office of violence. LSU's playing a role. Jeff Asher with the city council is 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 at, at the table. We brought in a national player, a guy named Thomas Apt, who focuses on this as well. And so I'm trying to pull together a group. I think it's the 17th of this month to figure out what works, what doesn't what should we promote, how should we fund it, and basically funding uh, will have to go up substantially, and there are pots. You have ARPA dollars, you have city dollars, you have the New Orleans NOLA coalition raising 15 million, and then Washington, the Department of Justice, and HUD, and Department of Health are all open to a presentation that the city is got its arm around this comprehensively, has a plan, wants to see it funded. And then you have to measure it carefully. Uh, Not only measure what they're doing on the police side, but measure what you're doing on the prevention side with random studies and all the expertise that goes there to determine is what you're doing working. And if it's not working, uh, either improve it or eliminate it. And focus on what is working and then try to coordinate efforts. And when I say coordinate efforts, I think at the table, you need the Department of Health. Mental health is a big picture. You need transportation. You need to get people from one place uh, to another. uh, And you need to have uh, a public-private focus and management, which would include the mayor, obviously, and the city council and and, and the NOLA coalition. So it's a work in progress, but we need to move quickly and, and hopefully we'll have a, uh, a, a, a plan that, that, that makes sense with delineated funding and how it would be researched to present to the public and private bodies at the city, state, and national level.